From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. In January of 2021, Florida Gulf Coast University President Dr. Mike Martin convened a group of people from the campus community to talk about social justice and anti-racism. This was about eight months after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May of 2020 and toward the tail end of months of widespread protests over his death. FGCU President Emeritus Dr. Wilson Bradshaw sat down for an interview with the university's ombuds, Monique McKay, and FGCU's Assistant Director of Community Relations, J. Webb Horton, to talk about issues around social justice and anti-racism. Dr. Bradshaw grew up in a segregated South and did not attend his first desegregated school in Sanford, Florida until ninth grade. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology from Florida Atlantic University and his doctorate in psychobiology from the University of Pittsburgh. He served as president of Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota for seven years prior to becoming FGCU's third president in 2007. He served as president here for 10 years before retiring. On today's show, we're going to listen back to the conversation Dr. Bradshaw had with Monique McKay and J. Webb Horton in January of 2021. And then we'll talk with him about how much has changed around issues of social justice and anti-racism over the past year and a half including the new Stop Woke Act, or HB7, that Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law on July 1st. Let's hear that conversation now. So tell us a little bit about your background, President Bradshaw. I'm just interested in um, knowing a little bit more about your family life and mm-hmm. your social identity. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida. I was born in Sanford, and my mom and dad uh, separated early and there were five kids. We all went to public schools in West Palm Beach. Uh, it was segregated to Florida that I grew up in for most of my early life. In fact, I didn't go to an integrated uh, public school until ninth grade. And uh, I ate at segregated uh, food counters in West Palm Beach, went to segregated movie theaters, and it was just the type of life that was very common at that time. So you can imagine that I, uh, I've seen a lot of change, uh, a lot of dynamic change, not only in Florida, but in the country since the time I was growing up. So tell me a little bit about your family's values as they relate to education. Were you expected to go to college? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, in my community, not just my family, but in the black community, it was almost folk wisdom that the way to succeed and to overcome um, obstacles was to get more education. And that was really sort of a mantra. We all embraced uh, or, or taught to embrace uh, education. My early teachers were all African-American. They lived in the community that I lived in. They went to the churches that me and my family went to in the grocery store. So they were not just teachers in the classroom, professionals who we saw just during uh, a six or eight hour period of school day, but these were people who were very much a part of the community. So our values came not only from our families, but from people within the community who reinforced the importance of education. And I think most people, all of us, were expected to value education and to pursue it as, uh, as much as we were able to. What were the disconnects uh, you experienced when you were at college? Oh, you know, going off to college, that was really quite an experience. You know, I uh, 
was a first-generation college student among my uh, sisters and brothers. And uh, I started out college at Palm Beach Junior College. It was Palm Beach Junior College then. And that was just maybe a couple, maybe three years after the uh, segregated Roosevelt Junior College had closed and Palm Beach Junior College then became a community college within Palm Beach County and was integrated. And that's where I started, having graduated from Palm Beach High School, which um, was, uh, I'm trying to think, well, maybe three African-Americans in a graduating class of about 500. So that that was a, my high school experience. There were very, 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 very few African-Americans because it was the early days of desegregation in Palm Beach County. Now, keep in mind, that was in 1964 when I started in an integrated high school, predominantly white high school, was Central Junior High School. In 1964, of course, was 10 years after the Brown versus um, the Topeka District of Education. That was in 54 when it was deemed by the Supreme Court that separate but equal was uh, unconstitutional. In high school, uh, it was early on, it was a very trying, very stressful experience. In fact, as I went through college or went through high school and then college, uh, I, I found myself vowing that my children would never integrate any school because it was just, in my opinion, just too stressful. Uh, I, I remember going home in ninth grade almost every day with a headache. But that was part of my experience in high school. I wasn't very engaged socially in high school. I did uh, run track, I must say, not very well. But <laughs> I did get a letter, so that was good. But then I went to Palm Beach Junior College and uh, completed two years there because I could afford that, and my, my mom could afford that. But I worked all during uh, junior high and high school in the uh, community, um, initially selling newspapers, later on working uh, at a pharmacy, delivering drugs and cleaning up the pharmacy and things like that. So I was saving for college. It was something that, you know, I just expected that I would do. And I remember when I graduated from Palm Beach Junior College and went on to Florida Atlantic University where I got my bachelor's and master's, the community really turned out the day I left West Palm Beach to go to Boca Raton. And they brought me things like T-shirts and uh, pencils and just all kinds of things they thought I would need going away to college. So in many ways, when I was sent off to college, to Florida Atlantic University, I was sent off by the community. It was amazing that that happened. And I really didn't fully appreciate it, uh, like many things in life, until later on when I looked back on it to see those um, men and women in my uh, neighborhood just come by the house the day I was leaving and give me things. I can't tell you how many subscriptions I got to Reader's Digest <laughs> at the time, but it was um, it was symbolic of them sending me, you know, a neighborhood kid off to college. That didn't happen that often, at least at that time. Let me ask you this, Dr. Bradshaw. So you had your community sending you off. What were your expectations about college, and then what was your reality when you got there? Well, you know, uh, my expectations, I, I, I don't know exactly if I have very specific expectations, but I do remember how I felt and what my observations were when I got there. I, I was amazed. Well, I was amazed that I had gone away to college once I was there. 
I was amazed that I had such, what I thought at the time, such great living conditions. Uh, you know, I, I said I had five kids in my family, and we had like a two-bedroom house, and it was just something that I took for granted. That's how people lived. Well, when I got to Florida Atlantic University, I lived in the residence halls, and I recall many of the students, uh, again, mostly white students, were just complaining about the dorms. And I couldn't understand it because they were air-conditioned, we had wall-to-wall carpeting. We had linens that we could walk over and change a couple times a week. So I remember being struck by how good the living conditions were then for me. And really, after that, I early on just immersed myself in my schoolwork. I had a job on campus. I had the Pell Grant, and at the time it covered a lot more than uh, it covers now. And I just dived into the... Uh, into my studies. Uh, I made friends with people in my discipline. I majored in psychology then. And in my senior year, I got more actively involved. I ran for student government vice president, and I won that. Got more involved with clubs. Got more involved with uh, a particular professor, Dr. Singer, who mentored me in the laboratory. And I did what I think college students did. We partied, you know, we went to discos. They all recall what those were. And it was a growing experience at the undergraduate level. And I think I had a fairly uh, active undergraduate life, and it was fulfilling. I remember when Kent State happened, and uh, we shut down the university. So I was involved with those uh, you know, anti-war and civil rights activities. In junior high, I was the uh, president of the Organization of African American Students, so I had opportunity to be involved with those, at the time, socially relevant organizations, and then later on get more involved with the student government. And that's, that's sort of what my uh, college life was like at the undergraduate level. And yeah, I did go to the library once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bradshaw, as you were heading off to college, were you aware as a student of color that there would be barriers because of your race and then what kind of systematic barriers did you uh, maybe encounter? Well, you know, Jay, um, the barriers were um, always there. I, I won't say they were second nature. It's that you, you knew they were there. I mean, as I said early on, <laughs> I couldn't eat where I wanted to eat. I couldn't go to the movies where I wanted to go to the movies. Black people couldn't live where they wanted to live. There were barriers that were... Well, they weren't hiding. They were hiding in plain sight. They were always there with me going up. And so going off to college, I had folks, not just me, but other students, telling us that we had to grab this opportunity and make the most of it. And it was not just about individual success. It was about making uh, a path for others to follow. And that took some breaking down of uh of barriers i mean there were many firsts during my time yeah i uh and it was very common for me to be the only african-american in a class in fact in most of my classes and i will tell you throughout my college education through my phd i ne- never had an african-american professor i don't think students experience that today they have other challenges 
So, you know, when you're, you're looking for validation, you have to look for it in the right place if you need that to push on. And oftentimes that did not come from my professors. It came from my fellow African-American students and African-American organizations. And as I mentioned early on, my community and my mom. And, you know, so it came from other places. It was no less valuable or no less needed. But uh, I was fortunate that it was there throughout my education. Given that, what made you want to be a professional in higher education? Well, you know, I never really wanted to be in administration. <laughs> that wasn't my goal. When I started my, when I got my interest in research was at, at Florida Atlantic University. And it really was more an interest in brain function. I uh, took a couple of courses in what was then called physiological psychology. And I was really turned on to something I had not been exposed to before. And those are brain mechanisms and how they work to mediate behavior. And I was fascinated by that. And this professor, Jay Singer, at FAU, I guess he saw that in me and invited me to be his lab assistant. And I got more into research and research methods, and I took more courses in neuroscience and just got very interested in that. And he fueled that interest, and I was fortunate enough to publish a paper with him before I graduated. As an undergraduate, I was accepted into his lab as a uh, graduate student, and he encouraged me to go on for my Ph.D. I really did that, and it wasn't a, the work was very, very hard, but it wasn't a struggle doing it, you know, making the decision to do it. It's just what I liked to do and what I had a keen interest in. And ultimately, I guess I had some facility and talent to pursue that. So I, uh, I started out to be a research scientist. And in fact, my early jobs as a faculty member was in research. My postdoc was at MIT. I uh, got an NSF grant to do research on hormones and behaviors and females and males. And, and that's what I did. And really never saw myself as an administrator until much later after I had gone through the faculty ranks, you know, becoming a system professor and an associate professor and a full professor, and, you know, you get tenure. And then opportunities come. You know, for me, I thought about, well, all throughout my whole faculty career, I, I really didn't, uh, and faculty generally, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, don't generally hold administrators in high regard. <laughs> you know, oftentimes, and I was one of them, that, you know, you don't know what they do except get in your way <laughs> or do most things inefficiently. And so I thought about it and I talked to folks and said, well, you know, if we as faculty, if we know so much about what's wrong with academic administration, let's get involved and make it right. Let's not just let it go on. And so I uh, gradually moved into administration, but my uh, career goal starting out, especially after I got into my master's program, was to be a professor, was to be a researcher. And that's what I was trained and educated to do throughout my uh, PhD studies. So what are some of the important lessons you learned as you made that transformation that you would synthesize for minority students? Well, you know, I, uh, I had a, a just uh, a very fortunate uh, opportunity at Florida Atlantic because I later went back there after I got my doctorate and became a faculty member and a dean. I had an opportunity to
to um, recruit a group of young men, and, and you've met them, most of them, and we kind of dubbed them the Brotherhood of Ten. Now, these brothers were mostly from the Miami area. Most of them weren't headed for college because they didn't think that was an opportunity for them. As I learned about them, I talked to one or two and then talked to one or two more, and then I went to their homes and talked to their parents about the opportunity that could be made available to these kids. And these young men at the time, they weren't going to college, but I was able to bring them to Florida Atlantic, show them around, tell them about the opportunities that were there if they were willing to reach out and grab them and embrace them. And I spent many years on the front porch in the living room on the back porch of these kids' parents' homes talking to them about the possibility because all they could see were the obstacles. Well, we can't afford it. Where's it going to live? And so we talked through that. And these guys all came to Florida Atlantic. They all graduated. I think, Jay, you met David Brennan, who was the dean of the law school at the University of Kentucky. These guys all became very accomplished folks. In fact, one of them just visited me the other day. I am so proud of them, and and I've said to others that I I think they're all smarter than me. (laughs) But they were one person shy of not taking advantage of that opportunity. And I told them, keep that in mind, because you never know the impact you can have until you reach out and get involved with folks on a personal level. So these brothers, I'm so proud of each and every one of them, but that's what we have to do. I mean, I was reading, uh, I got an article, it was in the Chronicle, I think Monique, you may have sent it to me, about what does it take to recruit students of color? Well, it takes a desire to do it, and it takes a person or an institution to value that. I mean, throughout my career, I've heard the phrase, diversity is is a strength of ours. Well, is that a value actualized or is that just a value statement? And it needs to be a value actualized. So the way you do it is, you you know, you have to talk to these brothers and sisters. And it can't be from your perspective of, well, if I can do it, you can. Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. The fact is, be aware of what is available to you. And if you decide that you see something that uh, you want to pursue, I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to give you the benefit of whatever wisdom I've gotten over the years. But it it just can't be value statements. I mean, we need to be beyond that. There needs to be actions, and those actions need to come from people who really care about um, the future of these people, these young people. One of the things I like about the Brotherhood of Ten story is that it strikes me that if you want to act, if you want to, as you say, make it not just a statement, but a reality, is that it's really not that difficult. And so you really need people that are committed, but you going out and meeting these young men and their families and just sitting with them was not a difficult thing to do. If you're committed and you take action, you'll get the results. Yeah, I think success, and I value all of the offices and the special programs, but I think if you're going to make more than just incremental advances, it has to be everybody's business. You know, it just can't be the Office of Minority Student Services or the Office of Minority Recruitment. Sure, they have their roles 
to play in providing context and framework. But if a professor or a dean or department head happens to be at a place where he or she can make a difference and have an influence and recognize that, I mean, you have to recognize that you can have an influence here. And I, I think people who have a similar backgrounds can recognize that. So when faculty and uh, administrators and other directors outside of the uh, usual departments are out and uh, in their circles, be it at the church or wherever, and you recognize that, hey, here's an, here's an opportunity for me to at least bring this to the attention of folks who might be motivated. When I visited with the uh, Brotherhood of Ten's um, parents, that wasn't foreign to me. I mean, these are my parents. <laughs> I've right. talked to these people before. You know, I'm, you know, I, they were the ones I'm, that gave you the T-shirts. Right, and, and I know them, and I, and I, and I know what uh, anxieties they have about this thing called college. And so let's sit down and let me talk to you about it. And, and so I can start the conversation with them by saying, don't talk to me about money. You know, let's talk about what you want for your child, and then we'll see how we can uh, support that. Because I think the, a lot of times these discussions don't happen because folks say, geez, I can't afford that. In fact, most people, if you ask them, how much does college cost? Let's uh, FGCU. How much does it cost to go to FGCU? When I tell folks when I was there, and I said, well, you know, it's, uh, tuition is less than $8,000. I think it still may be that tuition and fees, around $8,000. Now, that's not the cost of attendance, but that's a good place to start the discussion, isn't it? Because then it becomes something that, hmm, maybe, maybe we can work this out. But if you ask them how much it costs, they say oh, about $40,000 a year. Well, it doesn't cost that. Even cost of attendance is not that high. So you, you have to know where to meet these people and how to talk to them and, and how to listen to them, see what their fears are. And then let's get their kids into college. So what advice do you have for students who arrive at college and they're still facing barriers or experiencing racism? What advice do you have for them um, so that they can make administrators understand what their needs are and what support they need? Well, I, I think first, well, one thing I would say is if you're coming to college thinking that, oh, now I'm in college, racism goes away, mm, not true. <laughs> you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it just doesn't happen that way. And what you prepared yourself for in the real world will exist in colleges and universities. Qualitatively, it will be maybe somewhat different, but the nucleus of it, the core of it, is still the same. It's racism. So just expect that that's going to be there. And you know what? I don't think you have to tell students of color to expect that. You know? What you need to tell them is, but now you're empowered to uh, do something about it. In fact, you're obliged to do something about it. You should be involved with every aspect of this university to make it anti-racist, not just your... And, I'm, and I think these are important, not just affinity group clubs, but when it comes time to select a president, when your department is talking about department chair, when the system is getting ready to uh, fill trustee positions, 
your voice needs to be heard at all levels. And that may be a, a seen as an extra burden to bear, but it's a necessary one. My advice to students of color is to understand that all of the university is your business, not just a black student union. That's important, and you'll be involved with that. But the composition of the board of trustees, the composition of the faculty, the composition of the administration, the curriculum, all of that is your business. Uh, no longer is it enough to get in the door. We can get in the door. Now let's make the house a little bit better than it was when we got in it. That's what we have to, that's what would be my advice to students. So for students who are in the door and what practical steps do you think they could take to realize some of those things you're talking about, about being more empowered and getting more involved in important decisions that matter to everyone at the university? I think students, they need to recognize that they already have allies. They're not starting from zero. You know, one when I found out about the um, formation of the Black Faculty and Staff Association at FGCU, I just thought that was that was a wonderful thing. I just think, and students need to recognize that to hear a group of people who probably share some of your interests. So recognize your allies. And I think the Black Faculty and Staff Association is a ready group of allies, and I'm glad that that has more form than maybe it had in the past. So students need to recognize that and take advantage of it. And also, your allies, frankly, not all of them will look like you, and you need to be open to that as well. But the ones who look like you and those who have organized, you know, that's a great place to start and look to them for guidance because they many of them who've been there a long time jay webb uh many of them <laughs> who've been a long time they know what the systemic issues are i mean they've negotiated them and they've made progress on some of them but there are many more where progress is, is needed well, when you look at, you know, many black and indigenous and people of color across higher education, talk about the expectations placed on them that they believe are different than their colleagues. Can you talk about your experiences and observations about this issue? Uh, you know, the expectations are different. One thing, and, and I think a lot of us have experienced this, typically there are relatively few of us. And so each of us gets chosen a lot of times to serve on different kinds of task force and committees and all that, maybe at a rate that is uh, greater than the uh, majority faculty and staff and students. So that's one thing that's different. The other is recognize throughout my career, I've heard about this uh, concept called collegiality. And when I first dug into it, it was in the context of promotion and tenure of a faculty member within the department. And I determined early on that collegiality turned out to be, um, well, do you look and think like me? <laughs> you know, how much do you look and think like me and hang out with me? And that's collegiality. Well, when you're the only African-American or indigenous person or person of color in a department or in a college, 
Well, you know, you might be seen just walking in the doors, not being collegial, because you don't, you know, you don't look like them. And I don't mean just physically. I mean your academic and your social experiential background is different. So you don't socialize like the majority group socializes, and that could be seen as a lack of collegiality. Uh, you don't need to apologize for that, but be aware that that may be how your colleagues may be interacting with you and why they're interacting with you that way. I, I think over the years I've seen some changes with that. And I'll tell you, those changes have come. When you're the provost and vice president for academic affairs, you have a heavy role to play in promotion and tenure. And you can use that influence to educate departments about uh, how they are looking at things, because sometimes they may not be aware. And as a provost and VP for academic affairs, I use that to make sure talented people were not going to be excluded. But you got to get more people of color, more indigenous people as provosts and as department chairs and as deans so they can also not just articulate it, but act on it, you know, actualize the change, make it happen. And presidents, Brad. Yeah. (laughs) And presidents, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your role in educating fellow leaders, whether that's members of your cabinet or other leaders throughout the campus, about the importance of diversity and inclusion. Well, you know, I think the way you do it, because, again, when you're in higher education, when you're in academy, you know, arguably, you're with some very smart people. And smart people, at least in their minds, I don't think they know it all, but they know a lot. Or certainly they think they know a lot. And some think they know it all. From my perspective and the way I negotiated my administrative career is just through you know, showing you what I value. And some, uh, Jay and uh, Monique, you may recall, when I had a cabinet that had um, African-American VP, I had a female VP, I had someone of Hispanic descent as a vice president, I have a Jewish person, I had a white guy, and we sat at the table and I'm sure maybe y'all have even heard of some of the disagreements we had because we didn't all have the same perspective on on things. But I think it's fair to say that when we had cabinet meetings and we closed the door, everybody felt empowered to proffer an opinion that may not be popular, but how they felt, even if it was outside of their area. It was uncomfortable from time to time. I'm sure some people will say that, but that's okay. I mean, that's how you, I mean, change doesn't come all cushy, you know, and all warm and fuzzy, and change never comes that way. But I had I had the advantage of being the president. So while I encouraged people to say what they thought, and I had a diverse group of people, I didn't have a bunch of sycophants around me just saying yes to whatever I threw out. But at the end of the day, there's one vote on cabinet. (laughs) You know, and and then as that one vote, as you do that, having listened and heard different perspectives and the action you take 
I think it reinforced to the people who contributed to that decision-making process that I stayed true to my values. Following up with that, I know we're getting ready to wrap up here. What is the role of universities in educating not only students, faculty, staff, but the community? And, And you look at this time right now when over the last eight or nine months, the issue of Black Lives Matter and athletic departments and college campuses and presidents making statements, perhaps supporting that, when that may differ sometimes with a community's opinion of you trying to raise money in an environment that may not really have that same value. Yeah, yeah, I I understand what you're saying, Jay. You know, I think... um I still believe strongly that the uh, university in the generic is and should always be the marketplace of ideas. And when you look to major changes in this country, they either started or were fueled by students and faculty at universities and colleges. The civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, So I I think that uh, one thing the universities must stay true to are their values of free thought, equality, the dignity of all humans, and they can't back away from that. So if, uh, and I know it's it's a delicate balance because if if a donor says, well, and and I've, I've been around donors, not so much about FGCU, but I knew one particular donor of another Northeastern University, because of what the president did at that university, this major donor said, they're not getting any more money. I'm not going to give them another dime. Okay, that's fine. That's his values, and the university stuck to uh, their values. And I think that universities, they just need not to be swayed on their principles by dollars. You know, there's a, uh, I hope this is not indelicate. If it is, edit it out, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's a punchline to uh, an old joke saying that we've already determined what you are. Now we're just haggling over the price. <laughs> Universities can't be that. We can't be haggling over the price of our principles and those values that we hold near and dear to the academy. And we need to be almost evangelical and articulating those values to the communities that we serve. Because make no mistake about it, folks, the communities we serve are made up of the people who work at our institutions. We need to keep that in mind and understand who we are as an institution and make sure we stay true to that. You've been listening to a conversation Florida Gulf Coast University President Emeritus Dr. Wilson Bradshaw had with FGCU's ombuds Monique McKay and the university's Assistant Director of Community Relations J. Webb Horton back in January of 2021. That conversation happened when FGCU's current president, Dr. Mike Martin, convened a group of people from the campus community to talk about social justice and anti-racism. For the rest of the show, we're joined in studio by Dr. Wilson Bradshaw to have him reflect on that conversation and on what's changed over the past year and a half around social justice and anti-racism and the role of the university in addressing these issues. Let's hear that conversation now. 
Dr. Bradshaw, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Always good to see you. Weigh in on today's conversation using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media and on Twitter. We're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So the conversation that we just heard happened back in January of 2021. It's about eight months after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And um, while the local protests had mostly settled down by then, there were still active protests in many places, including there in Minnesota. Um, can you reflect on that time in general and the nationwide protests that unfolded over many months and, you know, would have been a sense in what led up to that time when you talked to Monique and Jay Webb? Yeah, it was, uh, and I'm sure many, many people um, felt the same way that I'm going to express now. It was, um, it was a difficult time. Uh, it was a, the beginning of a time of reckoning. I think we saw that event as sort of a, um, I won't say a wake-up call, but it made uh, what was prevalent more salient. The uh, inequities, the uh, discrimination, um, George Floyd incident brought all of that to the fore again. It was there, um, but it wasn't as um, present in the minds and in the lives of people uh, in a very visible way. George Floyd change that. Um, you mentioned in that conversation that you had been involved in the anti-war and civil rights activities when you were in college. What was it like to see something happening in the country that in some ways rose to the level of what was seen back then? Well, I think um, I, I think we feel or we felt that uh, many things had been accomplished. And let me quickly say that many things have been accomplished. And uh, I think for for many people, sort of you let your guard down because you think we have made some progress, and again, we have, but uh, we can be better. And I think the George Floyd incident, when I think about that in the context of the civil rights moving, it reminds me that we can always, and we must be very intentional on being better and how we, um, how we treat our uh, fellow human beings. I think you kind of just answered this, but, you know, you mentioned that you grew up in segregated South. You didn't attend a desegregated school until high school. Um, as somebody who had your early days in that world, how do you feel like over the course of your rest of your life, you know, things have progressed? Have, you know, you, they've made, you, you just said that we've made progress, but how do you feel about that, broadly speaking? Well, I, uh, I think that the progress we have made uh, over the decades is not trivial. A lot of people put a lot on the line. A lot of people worked very hard to make those changes, African-Americans and others, allies, to, um, to try to make our country what we said it should be in the Constitution. And we've made progress with that on the one hand. On the other hand, we see incident after incident where it's very clear that there is more work to be done. And in the environment in which we are uh, living in now, that work is, um, in some sense, harder than maybe it was before. Because I think during the civil rights movement, uh, we had allies who didn't necessarily look like us, but who were clear-thinking, right-thinking people, understanding that things had to change, that people all people should be treated with dignity and respect and be treated equally so. 
since this conversation was recorded back in January of 2021, I think it's fair to say that there's been a pushback in a sense, you know, at, at what the um, the essence of the Black Lives Matter movement brought out into the streets. Um, would you agree that it's ramp- been ramped up? I mean, that's not just my perspective. Oh, no, absolutely. I think everyone would agree that it's been ramped up. What are your up. thoughts on, on having been watching that? Well, I think uh, for me, uh, we should reflect on why it's been ramped up. I mean, it just didn't uh, – there were precipitating events that said, hey, wake up, folks. Things are not as good as maybe you think they are or some folks are saying they are. And we need to make sure that people understand exactly what our position is in the society now and be committed to changing that. We need to be committed and we need to be vigilant about uh, making sure – that equal rights and opportunities extend to all people, regardless of race, color, or creed. And that's hard work, and it will be hard work. It will be hard work this decade and the next decade and the next decade. I have uh, often told young people that during the civil rights movement, a lot of us got tired, you know, with, with the fight. We would fight, we would march. We would take stands, make policy statements, but it was very important that we not all get tired at the same time. So you get tired, uh, but you have a core of people in the vanguard, so you can step back a bit, find yourself, and get back involved with the fight. But you can't all be tired together because the circumstances that uh, precipitated those events are still there and need to be addressed. Um, what are your thoughts on the term anti-racist? You did mention it in your talk. Um, I don't think I was aware of that concept until what happened after the murder of George Floyd. And it reframed things for me in a sense that, you know, maybe being not racist is not helping to move the needle, um, societally speaking. Um, and so that leaning in was somehow necessary. What are your thoughts on that, that notion? Because it kind of does, you know, that sentiment does lie at the root of the pushback. I think what, uh, in my view, what anti-racism, that term, uh, embraces is intentionality. Saying you're not racist does nothing for the person in the room who is. Being anti-racist, mean, for me, it means to, um, to address the roots of racism in everyone, not just yourself. It's not going to be enough for Mike or Brad to be not racist. It will be enough when Mike and Brad stand up against those who are and recognize it for what it is. To me, that's what uh, anti-racism embodies. It, uh, it embodies the need to be an activist in confronting the uh, you know, the very ugly and very devastating disease of racism. Every morning I read a daily newsletter by a political historian named Heather Cox Richardson, and she frames the news of the day through the lens of history. And I've really learned over the past few years from her to see the the patterns that every time there's been an increase in a push for civil rights, there's been a backlash. You know, there was the Civil War, there was the New Deal era, there was the civil rights movement, there's the LGBTQ thing that's going on today. It seems like every time we try to expand rights, there's a pushback. Um, Is that effectively what's happening since like the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and all the things that have ramped up in its wake? In the examples that you just articulated, I think um, after all of those things, 
there was major change, major, I would call, progress in our society. And any time you have what some may call a sea change in what we do and how we do it, there are always going to be those who are against it. That's the nature of the fight. The struggle will always continue when, um, in my view, you're doing the right thing and you're doing it in a way that's going to possibly, probably change your lives and hopefully change the um, way people think about um, their role in the society and how the society is going to progress. There's always, it's never going to be 100%. Everybody's going to come along. But I think those who are committed to doing what's right, you just have to understand that. And I think a, a good, and this is maybe a micro example, but the uh, U.S. Congress now, I mean, can you imagine that on any one issue, there are 50 politicians in the Senate who all vote the same way? I can't imagine that. I don't believe they all think the same way. But there are other forces out there that, uh, again, we have to fight against, forces that are against doing the right thing, or forces that are embracing values that seem to uh, supersede doing the right thing. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, there's, there are always going to be people who need to be brought along, but you can't wait for them. Um, you just have to keep moving ahead. And in time, those people will come along. But for all of us, in time, we will die <laughs> and things change and uh, hopefully society progresses. And there are times when we have to stop and take stock on what we're doing and are we staying true to the changes that over the decades that we've been fighting for. And maybe um, just by nature, the the robustness of the backlash is equal to the amount of progress being achieved? I, yeah, I think it's uh, one of Newton's laws for every action. There's an opposite and equal reaction. And I think that, uh, I think you put your finger on it because things that are important to people, things that they feel deeply about, those things are very difficult to change. But again, you can't give up if you believe in what you're doing and if you believe it is the right thing. What are your thoughts on Florida's new Stop Woke Law, HB7, um, and in particular how it will impact schools and colleges and universities in particular? I think this can be, uh, this, uh, this HB7 can maybe unintentionally have very negative impact on the one hand. I think the, uh, how it's labeled, the Stop Woke Act. Yeah, and that's not a label put on it by its critics. Not, that's in the language. I know, I know, and that can be a distraction. Um, and I know that some of my former colleagues, uh, teachers, professors, they're probably wrestling with, uh, well, what does that really mean in the context of academic freedom and of actually teaching students the best that we can? And so I think the Stop Woke Act I think we're just going to have to wait and see how that, um, practically how that plays out. I think there's a lot of uh, confusion about what it really means, but I think the phrase stop woke is a distraction. You get caught up in the vernacular, 
and you're really kind of, and I don't mean just the vernacular of stop woke, but the vernacular that includes wokeism as well. You get caught up in those words and or the semantics, and oftentimes the syntax is missed. And maybe that's what we're seeing uh, with the um, Stop Woke Act. Um, that's what people are trying to sort out. What is it going to mean? And some folks are fearful that they know or they think they know what it will mean, and they don't like it. FGCU has yet to release anything publicly about how HB7 will affect operations on campus, but I read an article that quoted the president of the Association of Title IX Administrators. His name's Brett Sokolaw. He told the News Service of Florida that many trainings for university faculty and staff, quote, focus on anti-bias content and that the purpose of these trainings is to sensitize the participants to how common racism and other forms of bigotry can be in academia and how to be allies to those impacted by bias, how to intervene in situations of hate speech or acts and how to be a part of efforts to make colleges more inclusive and diverse communities. And as I understand it, HB7 restricts the way certain race-related issues can be taught in schools and work in training sessions, meaning that things that are happening now on campus may no longer be legal under HB7 in terms of, you know, implicit bias training, anti-racist training, things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that could happen. I can't imagine that actually happening in uh, our colleges and universities on a a wide scale. But um, I think professors, those of us who are in charge, or were in charge, of... um, stimulating uh, uh, young minds, teaching them how to think critically. I think that um, that we will not be stopped from doing that. And um, I think you haven't heard anything official from uh, FGCU, probably because like other colleges and universities, we're trying to sort that out. You know, well, what will it mean? Um, you know, academic freedom is something that we hold near and dear as uh, professors. And um, as professors, that's something that we simply will not shy away from. That's what makes, that's what makes this uh, environment, the colleges and universities, that's what makes them viable, not just for the students who are here now, but for what they learn and what they're going to do when they go out. That's important. And professors should not be stifled in that. And just to be clear, the law was signed by Governor DeSantis on uh, July 1st. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, August 15th or mm-hmm. 12th or mm-hmm. whatever. So it hasn't been that long. Right. Um, so as you're probably aware, HB7 has a fiscal enforcement mechanism and could carry a price tag for universities that violate it. Um, from what I understand, substantiated violations of restrictions in the law would make institutions ineligible for what's known as performance funding, which last year was more than $24 million here at FGCU. Um, in your chat with Monique and Jay Webb, you said that universities must stay true to their values of free thought, which is what you were just you know, echoing, equality, the dignity of all humans. Humans. They can't back away from that, and it's a delicate balance in that universities must not be swayed from their principles by dollars. It seems like this is, you know, a potentially a place where those things might come into conflict. Is that fair? Well, I, I think yeah, that, that's one perspective. Keep in mind that $24 million of performance-based funding that FGCU received last year, that's because FGCU faculty, staff, and students performed well independent of um, 
the Stop Woke Act, and they performed well on what the Board of Governors and the legislature in those areas where those folks think are important. And I think that FGCU will continue to perform well with those. Now, to overlay something as subjective, maybe as uh, the interpretation of the Stop Woke Act, on top of that, not so much as an incentive as much as a punishment, I think that's an inappropriate use of performance-based funding. I spoke with a researcher on this show who works on what's called pernicious polarization. It's defined as when uh, both sides of a political equation within a country have reached a point where each side sees the other as a direct threat to the future of the country. And in her research, they've looked at about 120 years of data on countries from around the world. In most cases, it's countries that are third world countries or second world countries. And in most cases, they didn't get through the, that level of polarization without something big happening one way or another um, to kind of break the log jam. Um, her research shows that we're in that now in the United States and that also we're an outlier in that we're a first world country where our you know citizens have civil rights. And so we're kind of operating in a big experiment right now with the polarization that we have in this country. What are your thoughts about that in general? Um, you know, how much do you feel it? How concerned are you about it? And can you see a way through it? Uh, I think one would have their their head in the sand if they don't see the polarization that exists uh, now. Um, I think that our democracy and the foundation of this democracy is strong enough to withstand that threat. But um, I can't deny that nowadays, for maybe the last few years, we have enemies on one side or the other not opposition anymore. And that that's a problem. If we see those who disagree with us as enemies, I think the uh, what you described as this pernicious polarization, that's where the danger is. And um, I still would like to believe that we live in a country where the majority of people uh, see those who disagree with them as the opposition, and they listen and learn from that opposition as opposed to a core of enemies that need to be destroyed. That would be very concerning. And are we there yet? Um, I think there are a lot of people who could argue that. Certainly we can see signs of that, and I see signs of that. But I don't think that... um, that perspective will prevail. We cannot let it prevail. It's it's like back in the civil rights movement. We cannot let segregation prevail. We did not let it prevail, even though so many people thought that it was the right thing. So I, I think that um, today, I think that's what we're seeing, and we have to, we all have to be involved with making sure that our foundation is sturdy, that uh, we understand opposition. And we know how to move from that to agreement, compromise. And uh, I think that we are seeing, we will see, and I think we are beginning to see some of that compromise come into play. What role do universities and faculty and staff have in making sure that happens or doesn't happen? Well, I I think that in universities and and, uh, with the professors, with the faculty, 
and staff, we have created an environment where our students need to be free to be challenged uh, about what they think and listen to views that are different than theirs and understand that in a democracy, that's what makes it strong. And a democracy, a strong democracy, depends on an educated populace. So with Governor DeSantis, uh, he attended what some would argue a couple of the best universities in the world. He's an educated person. Yale and Harvard? Yes. And um, while we need to keep in mind that we may oppose some of his policies and maybe some of his practices, but Governor DeSantis is not an enemy. He's part of the opposition, and we need that's what we need to work with, and that's what we need to try to address and have him understand what our position is and have him respect that and not um, not react as if we are now his enemy. And things get stalled that way, and ugly things happen. You can't, you can't reinforce behaviors that would have individuals attack the FBI, for instance, or the police you know, with violence. I mean, violence, it's um, ultimately it never really is a solution. Oftentimes it's on the path to a solution, but it's never a desired path. It's one of, and should be one, of last, if any, uh, resort. Uh, real quick, because we're basically out of time, how's the Brotherhood of Ten doing? Brotherhood of Ten, they are thriving. In fact, I've visited with a couple of them over the last few months. Um, one of the guys, Paul Baudet, his son is in the Air Force. He's stationed at uh, Jacksonville Naval uh, Air Station. So he was in town. and So we hook up, we exchange emails. I know what their children are doing. And uh, those guys are just, they're, they're just super, and I'm just glad to have had some impact on their lives, and they had a great impact on mine. All right. Well, thanks to our guest, Dr. Wilson Bradshaw is president emeritus at Florida Gulf Coast University. He was our third president who served from 2007 through 2017. Dr. Bradshaw, thank you for coming in and talking with me today about these timely and sensitive issues. Mike's always a pleasure. You know, you and I have had a relationship even before I was actually fully on on campus and uh, always glad to come back and speak with you and my beloved institution. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island. We are a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University. Mm